Hi, I'm Malcolm Hawker, and this is the CDO Matters Podcast, the show where I dig deep into the strategic insights, best practices, and practical recommendations that modern data leaders need to help their organizations become truly data-driven. Tune in for thought-provoking discussions with data, IT, and business leaders to learn about the CDO matters that are top of mind for today's chief data officers. Good morning, evening, or afternoon, whatever time it is where you are. I am Malcolm Hawker, the the host of the CDO Matters podcast. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by the Dean of Big Data, Bill Sparzo. Bill, thank you for joining. It's a pleasure to have you. Thanks, Malcolm. I've, I've been very much looking forward to this conversation. We've we've been conversing on LinkedIn across a number of different topics for seems like ages. And so I am thrilled that I finally get a chance to do something live and, you know, in person. Me, me too. It, it, your, your posts are always provocative. And you're one of the people that when I read something, I want to invest time to have a cogent response. <laughs> I, I don't know why, but but the nature of your posts is is such that um, the level of 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 contribution that I want to make it, to to me, it feels like I need to invest it because because you've got a community on LinkedIn of really smart people. Like I'm 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 blown away by the quality of the interaction, the depth of the insights that that is pretty much on every one of your posts. So when I'm reading your stuff and when I'm responding, it's like, okay, I better, I better dust myself up, pick myself off, you know, put on some makeup, you know, I, I got to look good for this post because I don't want to look like a big dummy because you're talking to some of the smartest people on the planet. So I, I, I appreciate, uh, I appreciate the comp, uh, compliment and the comment um, because it, it, it certainly uh, works both ways. I was excited to have you as well. Um, you, you are a prolific author. I'm, I'm going to plug you a little bit here for, for our audience. Um, just going back through your, your library, I mean, is, is, is just amazing how much you've written over the last decade. Several books. I'll, I'll just read off a few of them. Uh, a book called Big Data, Understanding How Data Powers Big Business, the Big Data MBA, uh, The Economics of Data Analytics and Digital Transformation. That's a great one. Uh, the Art of Thinking Like a Data Scientist. And most recently that we're going to talk a little bit about uh, today is uh, AI and Data Literacy. Now, uh, I have not read the book. I did did read the, the preface or the preface uh, of the book. So I have a decent understanding of, of, of kind of the, the tone and some of the things that you're trying to touch on. But I want to I want to drill down into that first. But it is available for pre-order on Amazon right now. So the latest book by Bill is, is out there and, and you can go grab it on Amazon. I just checked that. Um, in addition to be a prolific writer, uh, Bill's professional career uh, is, is, is truly remarkable. Um, I, I looked through your resume and I was like, holy cow, I didn't even know all of this stuff before we <laughs> talked. So you were, you were the CTO at EMC. Um, right. Was that during the acquisition from Dell? That was right before I joined EMC about the same time, actually the same day they announced the Green Plum acquisition. Okay. And so EMC was making a big move. You know, they're a very large, probably the world's leading storage company. They are making a move into big data. I was brought on board as a CTO of the big data consulting practice because we knew that the big okay. data conversation was more than just storage. And uh, credit to EMC for seeing that. And we created a, a very robust, probably a 200 person consulting group that focused in on 
big data and how do you get value from it? And wonderful experience. EMC was a wonderful company. Um, got acquired by Dell. Um, I left Dell for Hitachi Ventara for, for a few years where I was a chief innovation officer. But I came back to Dell because I was intrigued by their vision with respect to what they're trying to do with data management and um, and such. And we can spend more time talking about that later, but yes. Well, so at your time at Hitachi Ventara, you would have overlapped briefly with Renee Lottie, yes? A lot, a lot. Well, so she was my most recent guest. So we just published a, an episode of the podcast uh, last week, which would have been the first week of July. Uh, we're recording this in, in July, probably published in August, but my conversation with Renee was fantastic. Um, and again, holy cow, talk about a smart person who's, who, who, who knows it from a CIO perspective. So I, I, like, and I saw that on the resume is like, oh, wow, serendipity, you and Renee work together. Well, and she, she's probably my best student. So there's a story here. Okay. So um, we're at Hitachi um, as the chief innovation officer. I had three distinct groups. I had a data science team, most of whom were people I had brought with me when I left EMC. I had a co-design team that drove value engineering engagements, which also kind of came with me from EMC. And then I had a design thinking team. And we used that to try to transform how we were engaging with our customers. We, we had this value engineering approach. And so I was at sales kickoff, was talk, trying to educate our sales teams about how we needed to have a different conversation with our customers around not just storing data, but how do you create value from data? And I walked through the methodology we, we, we were doing and I, and I got done and I hadn't even gotten off the stage. I was walking off the stage for the, and Renee was kind of in the front row of the big, big, auto, you know, big place and a lot of sales people, marketing people, but she comes running up literally onto the stage and grabs me and she's shaking me. She goes, you got to talk to me. We got to work. Together. We gotta. <laughs> and she, she was so fired up and what she had done, I'm not, don't mean to go off on a tangent here, but <clears throat> she had done the classic mistake. She'd brought in a, you know, a bunch of analysts, she brought in a yep. bunch of consultants and they said, build a data lake and load yep. all your data into it. And she did that. She, she built a giant data lake, put 35 data sets in there and then opened the doors for, for the world to be fruitful and make money. And all she got were crickets. Right? And so we did a different approach. We used the approach we took, we, the value engineering approach. We picked a use case. We found a friendly in Jonathan Martin, who was the head of marketing. And we built a use case that delivered 22 additional $22 in revenue the first year it was out. The first year paid for that big giant data lake that was sitting there, you know, doing nothing. But she, after we did that, she became a believer. And I've seen her run a number of different projects since leaving Itachi, where she's helped companies really unleash the value of their data. Well, so she she will highlight that the the data lake field of dreams. She'll highlight that as, as, as one of her greatest professional failures, AKA learning opportunities. Um, Cause she's a big believer in growth through, 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 through missteps as, as am I, cause I got to where I am by failing multiple times. But yeah, I really enjoyed hearing that story from her. Um, and, and now just some more reinforcement from you. Um, because that's something that I talked about all the time at Gardner was, was, was avoid the field of dreams, right? Don't build stuff yeah. for, for just, just cause, Honestly, Bill, you know, that's that's kind of you know, on the tombstone of big data. And I'd, I'd love your response to this, right? On, on the tombstone of, of big data to the degree that there is one, 
I think you could make a case that it should say something to the effect of, you know, it, it was the dream that never, it was, it was the field of dreams, right? Because so I know so many companies that invested so much in Hadoop to answer a bunch of questions that nobody was asking. Amen. Okay. You don't argue. Okay. No, there is a, there will be a tombstone for it. Um, and I think you're exactly right. The fuel of dream things, build it and they will get value from it, did not work. It was a colossal failure. And we could see this coming, though. We saw this with data warehouses. Yeah. We saw the same trend with data warehouses. And I was, in my life, Malcolm, a lot of failures, but also I've been very lucky, a lot of forced gut moments. <laughs> right place, right time, right? Not because I'm tall or good looking in Iowa. Yeah. Sometimes in life, you just get lucky. And, and I was very fortunate to spend 20-some years of my life working very much in the BI space, worked closely with Ralph Kimball and Margie Ross. When I was at Procter & Gamble, working with them in the late 80s, we built what probably was one of the very first data warehouses in our collaboration with Walmart and our electronic point-of-sale data. And it became very clear that if you just threw data into a repository and didn't understand what decisions you're trying to drive from it, how, how the organization created value, your data warehouse is going to fail. And we saw data warehouses fail massively. So it was no surprise that this idea of just gathering data, throw it into one place, and you're going to be successful is flawed. And not to get myself or you into too much trouble, but we see the same thing now with you know, data lakehouse and data fabrics yeah. and data meshes. They all talk, they're so focused on, well, we got to decentralize governance. We got to do this, right? Okay, that's, it's all really good. How do you create value? Yeah, what yes. is? You need to start the data. The data valuation conversation. You know, creating value from data doesn't start with data. It starts with value, and they we don't do that, and it drives I, me friggin' nuts. I I just made a post about this yesterday that I know that I know that you saw. It, it was in in my three years as a Gartner analyst. I, I, I was given the amazing, incredible honor of being able to talk to 1,500 senior data leaders, sometimes CDOs, sometimes CIOs, sometimes VPs of data and analytics, sometimes senior managers, doesn't matter, talking about their challenges. And easily, easily 70% of the time, my estimate would be you could trace back those challenges to a inability or a lack of desire. I don't know if it's, it's, it's ability or desire. I'd like to talk about that. And we will get to the book, by the way. Um, okay. Whether it's a lack of ability or lack of desire or whatever it is to actually understand the business value of the, of the things that you were investing in. In the data and analytics solutions that you were providing, the infrastructure you were turning up, an inability to, to be able to quantify that value had all of these downstream impacts. The, the list of downstream impacts is, is as long as my arm, inability to prioritize, inability to control scope, inability to, to secure stakeholder funding, inability to protect your budgets year over year. I could keep going. And oh. they always traced back to that. And one of the reasons why I left Gartner, Bill, was because for three years I was telling people, you've got to build business cases, you've got to build business cases, you've got to build business cases. And they didn't. And I came to the conclusion that Okay, it's not the message. It can't be the message. It cannot be the message because this message is sound. Maybe right. it's the maybe it's the messenger, and and I'm open to that. Maybe it's me, um, or maybe it was the medium. I landed kind of on the medium and said, okay, well, you know what? Maybe maybe uh, Gardner, it's just a checkbox, and maybe there's a better way for me to impart this message because the medium I'm using today, I think, could be part of the problem, which leads me to podcasts and leads me to LinkedIn and leads me to these other areas. But what do we got to do to get over this hump? So you you 
raised a really interesting point. Is the problem ability or desire? Yeah, I'm right. going to add a third one. I think the real problem is comfort level. Mm. I think these are conversations that these folks have not been trained to have and therefore are uncomfortable having those conversations. It's like the problem we see with David scientists, you know, on all the LinkedIn conversations, we always, there's a, there's a, a handful of people who really blast data scientists because of the tyranny of precision. I think that the term is used and they're so focused on getting the building the right models that they don't yeah. even know what they're building the model for. And so I think part of it is a comfort level. It's interesting because the reason behind this book, which I, this is you know, the, the the economics of data and analytics digital transformation. The 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 frustration for this book. This book I cranked out less than six months. Wow. I just blasted it, right? And I was so pissed. It was at the beginning of the pandemic, and I and what we were doing to make decisions around COVID and 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 lockdowns and and you know the, the decisions we were making were were so were so awful. And so wrong. We made decisions based on averages, and some of the averages weren't even based on facts. And it was just a—it was a travesty of errors. You mean was, we didn't follow the science? Yeah, we didn't. We ignored the science, and here's the reason why. This is the reason why we need to stop stop treating data as a technology thing. It mm -hmm. scares off all the business people. Oh, another tech. We need to talk about it as an economic asset. And so that was my—that was the motivation. Is that hey, if you're a business stakeholder. I can, okay, you don't want to talk technology. We don't want to talk large language model or, you know, generative AI. We understand that. Do you want to talk economics? Because fundamentally, what is economics? Economics is, a, is the study of the distribution and creation of wealth or value. It's a value conversation. And so I wrote that book because if you want to change the game, you have to change the frame. And I wanted to change the frame of the conversation because you're right. I don't think it's ability or desire. I think it's a comfort level. And if I can turn this into a conversation that they feel like they can drive, they don't, most business stakeholders don't feel like they can drive a technology conversation. They're not prepared for it. You know, somebody right. will throw out something Agreed. about a large language model and, and transformers and they're all like, right, what am I going to do now? But they can hold a conversation on economics and talk about how are we building assets that I can reuse over and over again, that I can reapply across the organization to drive quantifiable value. And so I think Getting back to your point is, I don't think it's a messenger. I don't think it's a message. I don't think it's desire. And maybe ability has to relate to their comfort level. If we can change this conversation and stop making it about data and technology, and let's make it about economics and value creation. I, I think there's something there. I think I agree. And, and I think there's something there also about mindset. I'm starting to think that that mindset plays a bigger role in our relationship, our meaning data provisioners, data data leaders. I'm starting to think that mindset start plays a bigger role than we may otherwise acknowledge. I I think in my in my experience at Gartner, I saw what could only be described, and and this may not be the right word, but but it's a starting point. Um, what what could only be described as a lot of animosity mm. towards okay. towards customers and and that would never fly in, in if if your customer was like an, an external paying customer somebody who's buying your stuff levels of animosity that would never fly 
with 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 real customers where it's like oh well data quality oh well you can lead a horse to water oh data literacy they just don't get it right and and this could be a good segue into into the book by the way um so i'm going to explore a little bit more of that and that that mindset i think you're, you, what you just said is kind of having the conversation and be comfortable with a conversation around business, around the economics of business, cost benefit, you know, building business cases. There's, there's absolutely, I think there's, there's certainly something there. You could also make a case about incentives, I think. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yes. What oh. do you think? Oh, oh. So one of the things that John Smail, who was a CEO at Procter Gamble used to say back in the eighties, and I, this, you are what you measure and you measure what you reward, which is his way of saying, we are as a company what we pay our people to do. So if we say we're all about environmental issues and diversity and social good and all this stuff, and we pay our executives based on quarterly profits, your message is a lie. Your charter is a lie, right? And that has, by the way, has huge ramifications in the AI space, right? Huge, and we can get into the AI utility yeah. function and how, how if, you, if you're optimizing on short-term lagging indicators, your AI models are gonna just, we're gonna get wiped out fast. But yet that's what we do as a, as a society. We optimize the pay of our executives and our, some of our comp plans on short-term lagging indicators, right? And it's, it's, it's disastrous in the long-term. So you talked about this mindset. I think yeah. that's key. That's key. It's the, my experience in working with companies is the companies that are most successful in getting value out of data, for the most part, are not the large organizations, but they're the medium-sized organizations where you have a CEO or some leader who says, we're in it for the long run. I'm not here to build a business and flip it. I'm here to build a a community. I'm here to build, you know, a, a living entity that supports the, my local community and my customers and my employees and has, has a broad view. And when you have that kind of a mindset that has that broader economic perspective, you've got a much better chance of leveraging data and analytics, AI and such to really impact the business because now you're thinking more about that second and third and fourth level ramifications that, that, that fall out in the process. Well, that's that's an indictment of well, a potential indictment, not a full and complete indictment, but of of public companies in general and kind of the short term profit motive and the quarter by quarter quarter profit motive. Because uh, I agree, um, the the longer term perspective is absolutely positively needed here, and what you express, at least from a corporate perspective, would would kind of align to you know privately held companies where the long term perspective is is the guiding principle here. Uh, and yeah. it certainly seems like we could we could absolutely use a little bit more of that. But so there were multiple tiebacks into the world of AI. So let's 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 go there because we we could literally <laughs> talk for hours about how to empower CDOs and data leaders to be more value centric. Because um, because I think that's key. Maybe a separate conversation track. But we we did just touch on something that it, one of the things that kind of struck me in, in rereading the, the the preface to your book I, again this morning in advance of our conversation. At, at the beginning, you kind of talk about the idea that AI is being built for the betterment of mankind. It, 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 do, do you do you do you do you feel that way, or is is that something that we that we as a society need to feel in order to progress, in order to get over some of the fud that is that is kind of paralyzing a lot of us out there today? So 
AI can certainly be built for the benefit of humankind. AI to date, and I use the term AI today because there's a lot of things that get thrown into the AI category that really aren't AI. You know, regression analysis, right, association right, yeah. rules, it's just not AI. But, you know, a lot of those tools are built in, they suffer from confirmation bias, they suffer from all kinds of problems. So the way that we've done things to date certainly hasn't benefited all society. In fact, some of it has been very, very dangerous. Uh, Kathy um, O'Neill, I think her name is, wrote the book called Weapons of Math Destruction. Yeah. It's a marvelous book. I love the title. I wish I just stole that. Well, what a great title, right? Anyway, so, but there's every reason to believe that AI can certainly be used to benefit everybody. But, but for it to benefit everybody, everybody needs to be involved. That's the challenge. And that it isn't just sitting on the sidelines and hoping the government or some institution over here or some organization over here does what's right for me. No, to be a citizen, so that you know, the full title of the book is AI and Data Literacy, Empowering Citizens of Data Science. And the most important word, two words, empowering and citizen. Because as a citizen, is a being a citizen, citizenship is a proactive yes. effort, right? To be a citizen, you have to get involved. You have to vote. You have to make sure your voice is heard. And if my, my favorite chapter in the book, I think it's chapter nine, at the very end of chapter nine, I just, I was so fired up about what do we mean by empowerment? Because chapter nine is all about empowerment. We do everything and everything else. But I, and here's what empowerment is. And I just, I, I literally wrote it down in about 10 minutes, five or six pages of what is empowerment. And you'll see it in that end of that chapter. Because as a citizen, you must be empowered and you must hold yourself accountable for being empowered. You need to step up. So if we want AI to benefit all of us, all of us need to understand how it works and how we make certain our voice is heard, that we become, you know, like Tom Hanks in the movie Big, and we raise our hands and say, I don't get it, and not be afraid to be wrong and not be afraid or be embarrassed or shy about it, because this is no time to be shy. So I really believe that AI has this great potential, but it's going to require everybody to, be, to, to become a citizen of the challenge and make sure that they're involved. So the AI models, in particular that AI utility function, which is the beating heart of the AI model, has a diverse set of variables and metrics that represents the good will of what we're trying to achieve across all of society and all of humankind. I, I, I love the, the idea of citizenship, right? Because um, I think that a lot of people assume citizenship is, is an endowment, when in reality it's a responsibility. Well said. And and it is about being informed. It's about being active. It's about being part of a community. It's 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 not just something that you are given as 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 a birthright. It's something that you that you that you earn through you know being responsible resident somewhere. And as a responsible resident of AI land, <laughs> what do I need to do? What 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 do I what do I need to do to to, to better uh, become more empowered? And 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 a, and you know a, a producing productive citizen of AI land. Well, so you're you're really leading into the book here, Malcolm, which I appreciate. Uh, what I felt was there are there are six things that we need everybody to be comfortable with. Use that term comfortable again, right? So I can feel like I 
I have enough insights into these variables where I can be I can be an intelligent citizen in, in AI land here. So number one, you need to understand what data is, how your data is being collected, especially in the realm of big data, and all the ways that that data is being collected about you and all that ways that that data is being used to influence your decisions, your actions, and your beliefs, both good and bad. We also need to be very aware in that sort of aim area of data that a lot of the data privacy laws and GDPR, all these things, you know, privacy statements written in websites, they're not written to protect you. They're written to protect companies and organizations. So there needs to be, first off, just an awareness of how everything you do, you walk around with your, you know, your, your, with your smartphone, constantly transmitting out to the world where you are, what you're doing, what you like, all your preferences, what you eat, what car you drive, who you date, what you should, all this stuff is there. So data, data, data is the foundation. Number two, we need to talk about analytics. You need to have a very introductory understanding of the analytics. And this is where I've got one chapter that talks about traditional analytics, regression and you know association rules and clustering and how that's been used historically. But I have a whole chapter dedicated to AI. And the reason why is that when I think about what's happening in the world of analytics, regression analysis and clustering and all those kind of traditional supervised and unsupervised machine learning they were all optimization techniques. They all sought to optimize a problem, you know, inventory or marketing campaigns or customer retention. AI, especially as we see it being used for reinforcement learning, is a learning technology. It doesn't just optimize, it learns and continuously adapts. And it does this with minimal human intervention at, a, at billions, if not trillions of times faster than humans. This opens up a whole new way to think. This is this is not your father's analytics. This is something new. And so we need to be aware that AI is a learning vehicle and how it learns is dictated by the variables and metrics around which we tell it what to learn. So we are, as citizens of data science, we are empowered to make certain that, that again, that AI utility function represents the variables and metrics that we think holistically are important for society. So not just financial, not just operational, not just customer, but employee, stakeholder, ecosystem, society, diversity, uh, environmental, and even ethical, right? We, they need to have those variables need to find a way inside there. So the AI utility function isn't going to have 15 or 20 metrics. It's going to have hundreds of metrics. And we can talk about how it resolves those and et cetera, et cetera. But again, understanding that. The next section is then if we have data and we have analytics, the next thing is around how do we make more effective decisions, right? How do we make informed decisions? How do we improve the odds of us ourselves doing better, whether it's us individually or us as a society, right? The reason why, you know, you should wear a seatbelt, which by the way, 11% of people in America don't wear seatbelts, 11%. Wow. Even though the facts show that wearing a seatbelt doubles the probability that you will survive a car accident and improves by 75% the, the likelihood that you won't have a serious injury in a car accident, right? 11% still don't, don't see the facts, right? And so we need to understand how do we help people leverage data and analytics in the situation they're in, and given all the biases in their mind, the confirmation, recency biases, and all these sort of things, you know, organizational biases, to help make informed decisions to help them as well help, help society. Number four, we gotta talk about predictions and stats. You gotta understand some really basics about how statistics work and because it's important to understand statistics to help us make more informed decisions that we're using analytics for. The fifth one is about value engineering. 
um, you know, how do you create value from data? How do I use analytics to create value? And if you want everybody to participate, they need to see a direct line of sight from how they're going to get involved in this AI land, AI world, to create value for both themselves and for whoever they're working for. And of course, the underlying component to all this is ethics. We need to be able to talk about ethics, the golden rule, how that impacts. We need to find a way to integrate ethics as a to codify ethics and put it into our AI utility function, which can be done, by the way. But it takes it takes everybody understanding what do we mean by ethics and what how do we define ethical and responsible behaviors. So that's that's the six parts <laughs> of of this of this book. There's a couple of bonus chapters. There's a chapter about empowerment that I think is by far my favorite chapter. It's chapter nine. It's my far my favorite chapter. And the last chapter is actually a chapter on chat GPT and generative AI. And I use that, so I, I explain what it is, provide a little primer, and then I use chat GPT and, and generative AI as a vehicle to say, okay, let's see how applying these six, these six AI and data literacy components, how does that factor into how we use chat GPT? So it became a way for me to test the framework against a real world situation that, by the way, showed up about, you know, halfway through writing the book. It's like, oh, there's new technologies out there and it's taken over the world. I better find a way to make certain the book is relevant with respect to how we're going to use that. Anyway, you don't isn't need to buy the book now. You got the, all the answers right there. Isn't it amazing that two times in our in our life that, that, that there's been these 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 transformative like level game changing level stuff the internet and now this to me I fi yes. I find that amazing it's like we live in amazing times, but backing up, what I think I heard you just describe yes it was a summary of your book, but what I heard you just describe to me could arguably be a solid framework for a AI governance model or an AI governance operating model. So there's a lot here to talk about at a society level, and I could talk all day about at a kind of a society level and is government even prepared to be to be leading these discussions or, 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 or you know, driving these policies. But let, let's take it down a level in, into an individual corporation. Okay, because uh, because this this podcast is for CDOs and, and I'm a CDO and I'm trying to wrestle with all this stuff and figure out all these things. What I just heard you describe these six things to me sound like a solid framework or solid lens for me as a CDO to start asking some of these questions. And am I prepared to answer these questions? Right. Am I do I have a governance framework in place that would even allow these conversations to happen? Right. And, and if if I'm not prepared across these six vectors that you describe in your book, Sounds like you would probably want to be if you were a CDO making these decisions and driving these policies for a corporation. What, what do you think? Totally agree. In fact, I at the end of one of the chapters that when I introduced, I think chapter one introduces the whole framework. I created a a spider chart, kind of a radar chart across these six vectors. I like that term vectors, by the way. Where do you sit today across these vectors? Now I do it for an individual perspective, but it could be very easy for a CDO to say across our organization, where do we sit? And then I reintroduce that at the very end of the book and say, okay, now we've gone through the book. How well have you done? How well has the book done in trying to move you across each of these vectors in this radar or spider chart? So I do think it works very well from, from a CDO and surprisingly from a board of directors perspective mm. and knowing what the board of directors has to know what kind of questions I should be asking of yeah. my senior leadership. And I think this gives you the six vectors around which you need to explore. 
But it, the book is really, while it's written, it's not written for a CDO. CDO can get benefit. I really wanted to write something for everybody. Yeah. And this was part of the, the, I, so the publisher's pact, P-A-C-T, P-A-C-K-T, who did my previous book. And I went with them because I had two demands. One, I wanted the cover to look like it looks. And it's not a conventional cover for most tech books. It's very simple. Two-tone colors, dark blue, light blue, title, my name, and that's about it. Because I wanted to, I wanted the book to be simple looking because this is a simple conversation. Once we have people's awareness, the conversations along those six vectors can be very simple. So I wanted the cover of the book to look very simple, to not be imposing. The other thing is I wanted a price point that everybody can get this. So we negotiated for this. The ebook price is, you know, it's $9. I think even the, the hard copy price is under 20 bucks because I didn't want. 1999. Yep. Okay, good. Good. Because I didn't want. So I had a, that was part of my negotiations with the publisher. I said, you know, I, I'm not doing this to make money. And maybe I'll get a few more toys from my back here from, you know, from the royalties. This is about giving back. This is about saying thank you. God for everything that you have given me, all these Forrest Gump moments, all these great people who have popped up in my life. It's on me to share that. And so this book is written for everybody. That was my goal. It's not going to be relevant probably for, I mean, I'm not sure my mother-in-law would, would could understand all of it, but maybe there's a couple of chapters she would go, well, I get that. I understand that. But I want everybody to feel comfortable and empowered to have these conversations so that we, we make sure as a society that everybody, that, that AI is working for everybody in AI land. So, so one of the things that I'm, I'm intrigued by, and, and this was touched on again in, in the preface of the book, is, is this idea that AI will, tell, will do what we tell it to do. Um, is, is that going to be a true statement in a world of AGI or like an artificial generalized intelligence? Because this is, this is the world that I think that most people, this is most the Skynet for most people, right? This is when the machines take over world, when we, we can have a discussion about, you know, what generalized artificial intelligence means. But to, to me, it means novel problem solving, right? Where it means, it means like solving a problem that has never been solved before that would go beyond what was learned simply out of a training set. So, so first of all, do you, do you agree with that kind of really super high level definition? So I gotta be honest, Malcolm, I don't know. Okay. I don't know. All I know today is that the AI utility function, even for generative AI yep. is driven by the AI, the, you know, the AI model driven by the AI utility function. And we want to make certain that those, that we take an economics approach. We look for a wide variety of leading indicators some of them conflict. We should have conflicting variables in there because the AI models need to make trade-off decisions in the same way that we humans have to make trade-off decisions. It's not optimizing, it's learning. Based on the situation, this is the right decision now. Maybe a little bit later, it's not the right decision. Right? Think about an autonomous car. Yeah. Right? Oh, it's a good time to pass this car now. Wait, now it's not a good time to pass the car. So it's constantly making those trade-off decisions based on all the variables it's looking at. And so from a simple perspective of today's AI, AI is only going to take whatever variables you give it. It's going to look at what your intentions are, 
what your desired outcomes are, what decisions you're trying to drive, and it's going to basically take those variables and it's going to change the weights of those variables. Sometimes it's going to weigh this variable higher, so that it's going to do it continuously and change based on the, how the environment changes and based on what your intentions are. That's how it works today. How it works tomorrow, I have no idea. Constantly I don't know if we we'll, get to it. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if we'll build something that'll say it'll say, no, I'm going to start using this variable that says, you know, right. whack off human heads, and we do get terminators, but I, I just don't think, I just don't think that's where it's going to go. I mean, for one thing, these AI models, at least today, they don't collaborate. I mean, a lot of the fears we have around fake, you know, deep fakes. We're already building AI products that can flag deep fakes. We're going to have, it's like the old mag, Mad Magazine comic, you know, spy versus spy. We're going to have AI tools monitoring AI that tells yeah. you. And, and that could be, think about the benefits that if we use something like that for social media. Social media was totally untethered, unregulated. And anybody could post any sort of BS they wanted out there. And there'd be somebody who'd believe what you said. What if we had AI in there who was monitoring that thing saying, you know, the probability of that being true is, you know, this kind of percentage. So that we had some sort of intelligence helping us to make informed decisions by making sure we had vetted quality data. Well, you, you just touched on something. You and I were both around for the birth of the Internet. Um, you were at Yahoo and I was at AOL. So arguably we were both doing our part to lay the, the series of plastic tubes um, by which all of this amazing information is, is racing around in a, in a superhighway, which is what we called it back in the day. But one could argue that the internet became what it became because of a lack of regulation or at the very least because of how it was regulated, which carriers like Yahoo and AOL were, were, were in, in essence, common carriers. They weren't responsible for the stuff that was put on the wire, um, which, which, which allowed them, you know, to get to the point where they are today. My question really is kind of around regulation. Um, I think you could make a, a, you could, I wouldn't, but I think one could make a case that, that AI could be viewed as a public good or should be regulated as a public good potentially. If it has all of this 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 amazing uh, opportunity to create for so many, where, where do you see regulation going here? Um, yeah, so and I know we're crystal balling this, which is always dangerous. But but it, 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 you got folks like you know Elon Musk saying it should be regulated. I mean that that's that's something we need to listen to. What do you think? Yeah. So first off, the internet versus AI comparison, which I we were very fortunate both. The difference is in AI, we were building connectivity and pipes. I mean, in internet, we're building connectivity yep. pipes, right? Yeah. In AI, we're building we're building agents that can continuously learn and adapt with minimal, if any, human intervention. So we've we've got a different sort of almost you know uh, technophobia, techno uh, um, you know based creature, uh, homo not a homo sapien, a techno techno sapien that can yep. learn and adapt, and we've. And that's very different than we faced before. You know, the internet sure. had, we, 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 bad things happen on the internet too. Technology always is a, a double edged sword. But the thing that scares me most, it's also the most powerful potential of it, is the fact that it can learn and adapt. Right? Think about how your GPS system works and how marvelous it is to get you from here to there. You know, any sort of traffic accident comes up, it's learning and adapting and changing things and such. Um, 
the the need to ensure that we are using AI ethically is more related to what we learned about the unregulated use of social media than it is about the unregulated use of internet. Um, social media had Boy. had all kinds of undesirable, unintended consequences. Um, without getting into any sort of um, political bend here, I personally believe that it's driven a divide between brothers and friends. It's That's very obvious. easy. It's very easy in a faceless encounter to to radicalize your statements to other people. I've done it, but I've said things in on social media to a person that I would never say to them in person. And it's cost me friends. And it's why I've stopped using, for example, I don't use Facebook because I found I just it just was like it was like an evil devil tempting me to reply to somebody's response in a way that I knew was not was not good for me and was not good for them. And so I think what we learned about social media and the unregulated use of that has a lot to, to bear on AI, because AI could be a lot more troublesome. Um, so I do believe we should have regulations. Um, I'm thinking, you know, guardrails, not railroad tracks, that these are variables we need to re reflect into. I think we need to make sure we're, we're respective of protected classes and we treat people. I, I, I just write a series of blogs now on the golden rule and yeah. how you integrate the golden rule. The golden rule is a fundamental, it's not just Christianity. Every religion has its version of the golden rule. You know, treat others as you would have them treat you. I do think that's something we need to put into. I mean, I wish we had to put that into social media. I wish we would have put that into social media so it would have prevented me from saying something stupid to somebody who was once a good friend of mine who now thinks I'm a total jerk because I was a total jerk. And so I would have loved to have had those guardrails in place that says, hey, Schmarzo, don't write that. Don't yeah. write that. In fact, call the person and talk to them. Take the time to understand their rationale for their belief and then learn from them instead of just, you know, canceling them. So it's, it's interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm having flashbacks to a, a previous conversation I had on the podcast with Chris Wiggins, uh, who's the chief data scientist at the New York Times, uh, recently wrote a book um, kind of on the evolution of how we got to where we are. Uh, it was called How Data Happened. I certainly recommend it to, to others. And a lot of what you just described, I would argue, is a function of of the business model that was applied to the internet um, that, that in many ways kind of draw is, is driving some of the polarization as a means to effect, more effectively segment people and sell them stuff and advertise to them a world, another world, which you and I know uh, well, but tying off, we, we're running short on time here. And I do want to touch on one thing. You'd mentioned the golden rule. Another thing that you have been talking about often on social media, at least on LinkedIn, I should say, let's draw a distinction there, because I, I, I still see LinkedIn as, as someplace that can be incredibly productive and a wonderful exchange of ideas between professionals. One of the other things you've been touching on there is the idea of quantifying ethics. Yes. Right. As a necessary dependency for this, this informed citizenry and, and figuring out a way to quantify and actually put math behind ethics. How do we do that, Bill? There, so I, there are variables and metrics that I think if we take ethics and start breaking it down into what, it, what, what comprises ethics, I think we can, we can find variables and metrics 
that can help us. There's actually a worksheet in the book. Um, it's on the ethics chapter where the I, I propose a worksheet for how do you codify ethics? How do you start thinking about them? You know, do you, as an organization, for example, do you, do you measure, you can put in measures regarding uh, society give back. Um, how much, how much time do you volunteer? Mm. Um, you know, diversity of workforce. There, there are ways to measure it. But here's the, f- the fun part about that, Malcolm, is it takes human creativity and curiosity to start thinking about not only what metrics do we have, but what metrics should we have to think about, well, are we actually doing things ethically? The, you know, are we treating others as we want them to treat us, right? And, and start thinking about, well, how do I measure that? What are the variables and metrics against which I would mm-hmm. measure my effectiveness as a human? You know, and, and there's a lot, there are ways, there's no one single metric. That's the, both the challenge and the beauty. There's a number of metrics that go together that really define what ethical behaviors are. It can be done, but it's going to require us to be humans. And maybe, maybe the way to end this whole, this, this wonderful engagement uh, podcast, Malcolm, and by the way, I'm always willing to come on and do another one. Awesome. Is that I think what's interesting about the conversations we're having is that AI may actually force us to become more human that we'll start to realize what distinctly makes us human and our ability to forgive, to love, our abilities for tolerance, right? And and start to not only realize that those are what we do, but we can actually start thinking about the variables and metrics that actually go into an AI model that we want to have model what we think is ethical behaviors. I, I love it, right? Like as a parent, you try to model right? As a society, we should try to model. And ultimately what we're talking about here is a modeling exercise. That's true, by the way, getting back to our first conversation about value. And, and, and I was listening to you speak. I, I thought, I was thinking in my mind, okay, you know, this, this is value engineering. It's just a different twist on the definition of value, right? Where value could be a societal value. It could be an environmental value tying back also to that previous thing that you were talking about, which is a different perspective on value. Instead of just a single quarter, Maybe it's more of a generation, or maybe it's even a lifetime, or maybe it's even the, the life of an entire planet, potentially. So different ways of thinking about things. This is this, this idea of, of being more human, being more creative, thinking more holistically, thinking beyond just the initial quarter or the initial reaction to something, your initial post on a social media platform. I, I think, I think that, that's just good words to live by, right? And, and I, I think what I'm hearing you say is that AI is going to force us to start asking and answering more of these questions that potentially maybe we've been ignoring for too long. And that's where the, the role of regulation, I think, comes in. Because we're good. I've, a good leader would make certain, whether it's at a presidential Congress level or a corporation level or at a parent level, would start asking the hard, these hard questions about what what is our ethical behaviors what are the ethical outcomes we seek to drive? And what are the variables and metrics against which we're going to measure the effectiveness of those ethical outcomes? That's what leaders need to do. And that's why we all need to become empowered as citizens of data science. So we have a voice at that table to make certain that our view of ethics is being incorporated into this conversation. What's true for AI is true for our country. So I, I, I love it. It, it. Just coming off the heels of July 4th, that's fantastic. We all need to be more empowered citizens. Love it, love it. 
Bill, thank you so much for for carving uh, time out of your incredibly busy schedule. You're probably working on your next four or five books already. I look forward to every <laughs> single one of them. I really hope in one day in, in the very near future we can we can meet in person and and have some of these additional conversations because uh, because I think I, I think we could just chat for hours. I, I really really enjoyed it. To all of our listeners, to our guests, to our viewers, thank you so much for tuning into another episode of the CDO Matters podcast. Again, Bill, thank you. We will talk to you Thanks, all Bill. very very soon. Thanks all. Bye. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye.